0: Um, I'm just going to start to say uh, welcome and good evening this stormy night. Um, most of you know me, but my name is Yuan Lund, and I'm a co-director here with Aileen Burns of the IMA. And I would like to begin by acknowledging the Yagara, Yagara, and Turbo people as the traditional owners of the land on which we gather and show my respects to elders past and present. Tonight, we wrap up the Artists As series, which has been a year-long series co-presented with... Um, curatorial practice at MADA in Melbourne. And the last contributor, uh, writer and curator Tirad Solgarar, just came from Melbourne. He's um, usually based in Oxford and have been based in a number of places from Palestine to Berlin to upstate New York. Um, but he was very happy to come to Brisbane with the beautiful weather because uh, yeah. Melbourne was uh, pretty much Oxford weather like pissing rain and 17 degrees so... Um, Trusted has had a couple of uh, interesting days here, and tomorrow we're going to the beach, weather-permitting. <laughs> um, but that's not what we're here tonight. We're here to talk about the artist's as quarry. Um, and I don't actually really know what Terdad means with that, So, but I'm sure that's all going to be revealed shortly. Um, Tiredat is associate uh, curator at Kunstwerk in Berlin, which is one of our partners for the current Nick, uh, Nicholas Mangan exhibition and director at the Paul Klee Academy in Bern, and as well as a teacher at the Dutch Art Institute in Arnhem. Um, next year, um, and I'm saying kind of vaguely next year, we're producing a book um, departing from this year as The Artist As, um, and the reason I can't get a specific timeline for the book is that um, uh, one of our partners, um, Tara McDowell, she's having a baby. She might have had a baby already. <laughs> right now, so today. Um, so once she gets settled in her new life with um, a new baby, we're gonna start editing and working on a book that brings together some of the lectures with newly commissioned essays. But um, without further ado, I wanna just uh, welcome Tehrdad to give his talk the artist S Corey. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation Uh, it's fabulous to be here it's really a privilege Um, and thank you all for coming on this uh, challenging uh, day outside. Um, I'll be speaking for uh, well under the one-hour mark um, probably around 50 minutes or so and I'll be speaking about stuff which has accumulated over the last three, four years or so, and which has now been uh, commodified in the shape of a book called Traction. It was just published uh, six weeks ago. And so the material is drawn from that, and some of it is a further development of that material. Um, It's a whole agenda or obsession that I'll try to unpack for you. Um, And I'd like to clarify one thing which um, it's, it's, uh, I'm trying to take advantage of the fact that I got some feedback after the talk in Melbourne, and I was told that I'm uh, romanticizing the artist and demonizing the curator. So I'd like to uh, clarify that that is the furthest from my mind, um, and that and this might this will be clearer as I as I, you know, work my way through the lecture. But basically, <coughs> the advantage that a curator has is that a curator um, is rewarded for uh, thinking in a future-oriented fashion, structurally rewarded, the field rewards a curator for thinking in this fashion, whereas an artist is rewarded for thinking um, that he or she is, is accountable only for her work. This too is a structural affair. It's not about good artists, bad artists, smart artists, um, Naive artists. Um, this is what the, the field structurally uh, encourages and discourages. When actually the work of the artist is only one small part of a very large equation that is contemporary art. Um, so this puts this puts the artist at a cer- at a certain disadvantage. Okay. So before um, I'm, I get ahead of myself, I'll just launch into the talk. Um, so the series is called the artist as, artists can fulfill an endless variety of roles, potentially. They can be anything, potentially. Um, with And I'm placing the emphasis on potentially potentiality. It's an interesting qualification, and it's not only interesting, it's at the very heart of the definition of an artist working in the professional field of contemporary art. The belief in the miracle of um, unpredictability, of the radical perhaps, that's what is at the heart of contemporary art as we presently know it. It's what uh, distinguishes radical unpredictability or the idea that we can produce radical unpredictability. That in fact, uh, contemporary art is intrinsically so unpredictable that you cannot define it, pin it down. Once you do, it's no longer contemporary art. That is um, what our uh, protocols, as uh, people working within contemporary art, uh, hinges upon. And um, is in it is in this sense that contemporary art sees itself as the most contemporary of all genres, because the world itself is supposedly just as radically contingent just as incommensurately complex, just as unpredictable, just as beholden to endless possibility, the world as. So what I just said is something we can all agree on within the moral economy of contemporary art. Moral economy is a term I've borrowed from a sociologist called Didier Fassin. You can also uh, speak of belief system, which is a slightly different term, but it also does the job. Um, the funny thing about a belief system is that it obviously doesn't necessarily have anything to do with reality um, that's the funny thing about belief systems is that you can um, they give you huge degrees of impact even on a world that you completely misrepresent it's not necessarily any you know empirical uh, imper- uh, imperative here um, so In which ways is uh, the the belief system that I described maybe not quite uh, realistic? To begin with, there are many things an artist cannot be. Uh, Not potentially, not ever. Uh, Even a Premier League soccer player implies a matrix of accountability and specialization that limits our options. Nor can an artist be a subaltern. Because a subaltern, by definition, is someone who is kept aside and beneath the position that entitles her to a discourse. As for the discourse that artists are entitled to, discourses, even the discourse of boundless possibility, the idea that the artist can be anything. um, Well, the funny thing about it is that you would think that it's empowering. Uh, no matter whether it's true or false, you would think that it is a kind of invigorating idea that the world is your oyster, a bit like a superman cape, for example. Um, but the, and maybe there was a historical moment when that was the case, when this was actually an empowering belief. But today, um, what I'm trying to argue is that it's actually linked um, to a weird sense of victimization and it's this oddity that I'll try to unravel here and try to suggest other models instead. So they only invited us because we are Iranian. They'll never invite us because we are Iranian. The curator didn't even have a minute. The curator won't stop asking questions when you want the work to speak for itself. No one gets paintings these days. It's all about painting these days, because the market is just totally dominant. Critique is so institutionalized that you can say anything you want. It doesn't matter. Can you believe they actually censored my work? There was no fee, but I was hoping for exposure. There was no fee, but I was hoping for a critical platform from within. And the list could go, could go on, as you guys know. Um, the, so, the talk is called The Artist as Quarry, and I wanted to make three quick points about that, that title specifically. So, first of all, I didn't, I didn't choose the artist as victim, um, because victim is not only, it sounds a little too dramatic, but also, um, etymologically, it's a, step, it's a step closer to martyrdom and to sacrifice. So, to a kind of a metaphysical reward Um, when actually I think it's more precise to talk about quarry, about hunting, because artists do see themselves as the most vulnerable part of a food chain, as a resource for a machine that chews them up and spits them out. Secondly, this sense of being a quarry is part real and part imagined. Um, we don't have time to look at individual cases. Um, in a lecture, what a lecture is, is an opportunity to look at broader brushstrokes. Um, not of art at large, not of, um, but of contemporary art, uh, which is not necessarily regional art, traditional art, or ritualistic art. All of those genres have con- are contemporary in their own way, but not in the way that contemporary art is contemporary. Contemporary art fetishizes an endlessly complex ongoing global condition of which it is part and which it mirrors better than any other genre, supposedly. It celebrates the absence of a world picture at the expense of an investment in a viable future. So at a pinch, you could say that this project, this effort to say, to demarcate contemporary art and to say this... This is what contemporary art is, and this is where it begins, and this is where it ends. Um, is counterintuitive, because contemporary art refuses definition, by definition. But it's important if you want to decolonize other forms of art from contemporary art. Otherwise, anything is potentially contemporary art, and vice versa. And right now, contemporary art is the one that wins in this, in this bargain. I'll get back to that point. Um, thirdly, still talking about the the title, an artist's pervasive sense of marginalization is inevitable, it's systemic, because um, contemporary art rewards a disidentification with power. The idea of boundless possibility is linked to the idea of contemporary art speaking truth to power. Contemporary art is in the habit of seeing itself as outside of power. There's the institution, there are categories, there's truth, there's history, um, truth with a big T, um, and contemporary art ha- is, has a very hard time theorizing the fact that it has become power. It is part and parcel of the corridors of power. So the ethos of speaking truth to power is losing traction. This is um, a list that I've used as a kind of didactic tool for the last two years or so. Basically every time an artist or a curator clearly defined a best-case scenario for their project, I would write it down in a little black Moleskine notebook as you do as a curator. Um, And at some point I stopped updating the list and these terms, they're terms that are in some ways wildly different. Some of them have bloody institutional battles behind them. Um, some of them are controversial, some of them are embattled, some of them less so. It's within contemporary art that they are offered um, a common denominator. Um, and what they have in conto- uh, in common in contemporary art is they demarcate a turn, a deviation from the straight and narrow, a move away from the police order. Um, even a turn is something which is a turn away from something. Oh, I forgot to put it in. The educational turn, for example. Um, the, the para, the in-between, the indecisive, um, the indefinitely postponed, and so on and so forth, all point to an idea of indeterminacy. Indeterminacy on various um, levels. Um, indeterminacy uh, politically, it's the best case scenario if we, if we subvert something. Um, indeterminacy professionally, we claim that there are no boundaries. Um, indeterminacy also in, uh, in an exhibition space, where we say that the work is open to interpretation. Um, and so if we take that example, where we claim that the work is open and the audience completes the work, which is you know at the heart of uh, you know a key code of conduct in the field the the audience has to deny it's this it's this um, what do you call it marché de dupe uh, a fool's bargain. You know that I know that you know that I know that what is happening is that both the artist and the audience have to Deny their own authority, their own skill, their own expertise, their literacy at what is actually a deeply institutionalized um, uh, encounter. Instead, the idea of the radical perhaps has to come into play, um, and it is then transfigured uh, with the aid of, of a, quite an impressive. Uh, you know, set of ammunition that we have, which all points to this supposed best case scenario, which is uh, indeterminacy on multiple levels. Um, it is no wonder that the subaltern position holds currency here. The subaltern is celebrated in a thematic sense, but often even in a formal one, with the very because the subaltern is. Quintessentially, the other to the police order. Even in a formal one, the very materials used are stylized into quivering liabilities. Derives, traces, fragments, structures are built to wobble, rules are there to break themselves, red lines are there to be crossed. Do we ever spend time thinking about how to do away with the subaltern? Because surely that would be the best case scenario to create a situation where nobody has to call ourselves the subaltern or is called the subaltern. Do we ever think think about doing away with the subaltern? Perhaps. But for every minute we do so, we do spend hours conjuring, visualizing, commemorating, representing, substituting, and portraying it. The other problem here um, is that the subaltern aside, um, it's the artist who is disempowered within this moral economy. It's no surprise that an ethos of disempowerment would lead to really existing disempowerment. Um, what is funny and what is hard to wrap your head around is that much as the individual artist is disempowered, the apparatus at large, contemporary art, um, thrives in terms of the traction it has, the impact it has on the world outside. Um, Now, there are many exceptions to the rule. In all of our practices, we have moments that go beyond this stuff. The problem is that those moments are seen as exceptions to the rule and they're not proper, seen as not proper to contemporary art, as freak occurrences or as things which are not theorized or historicized as contemporary art front and center. But as moments that are, I don't know, exceptionally didactic, um, for example, and it's something that that um, came to mind this afternoon. Um, as I was I was uh, I had the chance to do several uh, studio visits as a group, and um, there are many indigenous art practices. It seems that are that transcend contemporary art, and that they are um, they are very specific to. a to a situation and make no apologies about that. They make no apologies about um, a very particular reading that they are hoping for and aiming for. And they make no apologies for having a a vision of the future. Um, But what I also keep thinking is that it's not... because I, I come from Iran, I've worked in various countries in the Middle East and When I first joined contemporary art, the ethos was that of inclusion. We have to be included here. Uh, The drawbridges have to come down and we have to be included. What I'm realizing again and again in these very different contexts is that inclusion is, is not enough. If you do have things to offer which turn this on its head, then this has to be very aggressively historicized and theorized as such as a challenge to the moral economy at large. Otherwise, it'll be stronger than you. You, you cannot, you cannot be, avoid being embedded within this moral economy if you do not explicitly uh, highlight, theorize, historicize the fact that you are doing something other. Um, and then, um, you know, examples from the south and the east aside. you have many political activists who, um, who uh, you know, have a political cause, but then they too will say, this is actually the majority of what I would call politicized art practices, is that they will invest heavily in a cause, and then they will step back at the last moment and say, actually, I don't want to make, I don't want to tell the audience what to think. Actually, and then the same generosity comes into play supposed generosity. Or another exception um, is when activists see art as incidental to what's happening, coincidental. It doesn't really matter if it's art, they may as well have resorted to theater or to um, you know, traditions of of, uh, political propaganda, what have you. And that's not what I'm trying to talk about here. I'm trying to talk about what the apparatus of contemporary art is informed by and how it has achieved such a tremendous amount of traction and leverage um, internationally. Um, the most... Oh yeah. One thing... Um, one last thing about the title actually, about the, the idea of Quarry. Um, it's also a pun. Like, a quarry is also a site of open excavation, uh, which also has to do with resources, obviously, but um, here it's a theoretical picture that's worth bearing in mind that offers an alternative to the first definition of quarry I was talking about. What I'm trying to do here is depersonalize and to talk about the the broader brushstrokes of contemporary art, um, rather than individual exceptions. And the idea of quarry here in this sense, it's a less... um, um, it's free of the individualized pathos of hunted prey. Um, And maybe it's a theoretical picture that points less towards the artist as individual sufferer and more towards contemporary art as a collective resource. Um, I'd like to try and um, offer one more g- g- uh, example of a, a statement on behalf of an artist to try and clarify my argument before moving into the uh, second part of the talk where I try to offer um, other proposals that point to to other directions um, so The most salient example, in my opinion, of artists painting themselves into a powerless corner is their approach to curators. Not a day goes by without a student telling me that I have a checkpoint mentality, that I'm old-fashioned, old-school, that the artist-curator thing is, you know, very passe and that obviously I've been living in a cave and that I'm not hip to all the conversations that have been happening. which may be true, but I I might still have a point nonetheless. Empirically, um, what happens when when this post-occupational, as Tara McDowell would say, this post-occupational ethos is proposed, you either have people curating and not getting credit for it, or you have people um, curating very sloppily and not being accountable for it. And accountability, for me, is at the center of the whole uh, discussion. Theoretically, meanwhile, there's, it's quite easy to, to unpack. Anton Vidocle, uh, you, most of you actually will know his work via his EFLUX project, uh, the newsletter which you can subscribe to. and. Um, uh, Anton and, and two other artists have, have come up with the efflux apparatus as actually a formidable example of empowerment to an artist. It's actually it's even more impressive than Warhol's factory. It's really quite a machine. Um, but his discourse usually does exactly the same thing, as pointing to himself and his peers as peripheral figures within um, a situation dominated by curators or the market. Um, In this text, uh, Art Without Artists, which he published, I think, seven years ago, um, he steps out of that kind of orthodoxy and he actually makes quite a refreshingly clear stand. And he tries to put curators back in their place. And um, so, the necessity of going beyond the making of exhibitions should not become a justification for the work of curators to supersede the work of artists. Um, Maybe you guys do have to do more than shows, fair enough, but don't impede on what is the the territory of artists. Um, What is more telling is the second um, sentence. Movement in such a direction runs a serious risk of diminishing the space of art by undermining the agency of its producers, artists. Okay. So the tone is refreshing, like it's really like a rappel à l'ordre, a call to order. Um, but I still have issues with it. And, um, and I'd like to, I think it's, it's helpful to, to unpack. It's mainly two of them, the idea that artists are the protagonists. And secondly, that curatorial overreaching leads to restricting the space of art, which is a bad thing. So with respect to the first point, and this goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning of the talk. Artists are no longer the protagonists in what, what we call contemporary art. They are often the most talented. They are often the most uh, proficient. They are the producers of the work in many ways. Um, but this work is just one satellite term within the broader moral economy. Alongside... The discourse, the installation shots, the curatorial trends, the market fluctuations, geopolitical hotspots, urban locations, and so on and so forth, all of which have supplanted the heliocentric model of things revolving around the artist and her work. As for the idea of um, the space of art being diminished um, by curators at the expense of, of... Artist space. Um, Here, it's it's a kind of it's a more tricky kind of it's critiquing critiquing this um, or disagreeing with this statement is a little more slippery because on the one hand, uh, contemporary art is actually as unhinged as it could ever wish for. It's uh, the space of art has been opened pretty. I mean, it's often to the misery of those around it. Uh, Not always. Um, but the playground of contemporary art is now far more than just an art space. It's, um, it's uh, finance capital, real estate developments, educational policies, job markets, the ideology of capitalism as we know it. Um, so it's, it's, uh, to, to, to see the space of art conflated with the space of artists being beleaguered is slightly misleading. Now, here's when it gets slippery. When I con- when I define contemporary art this way as this rampant gorilla figure, our impulse being contemporary art folk is to say, well, unhinged power is bad. We have to contain it. We have to deconstruct it. We have to subvert it. We have to undermine it. We have to mm, like it goes back to the glossary I was describing. What I would like to propose, and I'm not the only one, there's a, there's a conversation that's been bubbling up over the last three, four, five years, informed by speculative philosophy, by uh, accelerationism, by many artists, by many curators, and so on, um, is, is to actually relearn our identification with power to, um, to, and to unlearn the idea that we have to be speaking truth to power from a position of critical virtue. Um, so, in, in very simple terms, it's, it's trying to think of the situations and possibilities of, here when we're talking of artists' as quarry, of artists taking matters into their hands in a way that actually maximizes the power effect. Um, this is the dialectical backflip that, for me, is the best-case scenario. Um, if, I were, if I were making these points and describing this voracious nature of art to then say we have to, you know, uh, undermine it and dislocate it somehow, I would only be repeating the very moral economy I'm trying to um, un, uh, un, yeah unlearn. Um, so, here are some, some suggestions. And I'd like to take the, uh, what I defined as the most salient or interesting adversary for the artist, the, uh, the curator, as someone uh, we can maybe uh, learn from. I said in the beginning that the curator has an advantage in the sense that She's rewarded for thinking in a future-oriented fashion. Um, That is very much in line with thinking of art as an act of persuasion, seduction, conviction, organization, rather than an act of indeterminacy. Um, And so I would like to make uh, two, three points on what curators have to offer in this sense. So what do curators do traditionally? To this day, they actually do make a lot of exhibitions um, on a surprisingly, shockingly regular basis. Um, Artists do too, Um, but artists, when artists think about moving bodies through a room, they're seen as the kind of artist who uses or appropriates curatorial tools My argument here is that they are only curatorial tools because curators are the only ones using them unapologetically, when this should become a self-evident part and parcel of what the artist does, part of the artist's to-do list, not a stylistic option or a conceptual footnote, um, but what the artist um, can claim as her professional prerogative. So in a way, this is a plea to move beyond the whole artist-as thing and to think about the artist as artist, full stop. And so when, when, the, um, when the artist is engaging with what we at present are calling the curatorial stuff, this is re-theorized and rehistoricized into something that the artist does. Basta. Exhibition making can be an exercise in statecraft, in location, in entrenchment. But if you don't see these as tools of your trade, but as as categories to be undermined, then you're back to the innocent heroics of ungrounding and the critical virtue of deterritorializing, and so on, once again. What do I mean by statecraft? It's easy to forget that every now and then a single exhibition has sparked entire schools of thought, or consolidated the self-understanding of entire continents. Um, The picture up here is that of Edward Steichen's Family of Man, which was seen by nine million viewers on six continents and catalyzed schools of humanist and anti-humanist thinking alike. There are many other examples um, that I could go through here. Alfred Barr's Cubism and Abstract Art, Um, Adolf Ziegler's uh, sinister Entartete Kunst in Germany, concurrent to Barr's show, um, it, uh, there's a, there's a huge list, which I can uh, comment on uh, later if, if it's interesting. Um, but what is important is that they all rely on the unique social, architectural, panoptical, promotional potentials of a show, and on its kinetic potentials. Moving bodies through a room is a distinctive and rare skill that is fostered in contemporary art. Movements that can be preempted. These are micro-political exercises with macro-political implications and should not be left to curators. Now, there's no way of doing this um, without um, a certain degree of coalition work. There's no way uh, for artists to appropriate the curatorial as part and parcel of their own tools of the trade Without shifting towards a more strategic effort invested in uh, preferably international alliances and seeing um, artists perhaps as even a class. Ultimately, because ultimately personal intentions cannot really compete with the structures around you. There's a gravitational pull of business as usual, which is actually shockingly strong. I mean, among, among curators, for example, uh, curators are very, very eloquent in terms of, articulate in terms of describing what is wrong with a biennale. And they'll critique Biennales and take them apart ferociously. And then once they're at the helm, they'll do exactly the same. And when an artist is at the helm, there are nuances, but essentially it's the same thing. There, there's a gravitational pull which cannot be dealt with with good intentions. Um, It's something that can only be addressed um, structurally. Um, And it's also also, um, the reason why artists complaining about curators individually will never uh, amount to more than an attempt to guilt curators into charity, which obviously will not work because curators will not disregard their own professional interests and there's no reason for them to. There's no reason for anyone to do that. Curators need to be uh, coerced into into doing so. Um, And I'm not saying that because I'm a masochist, but because it makes the whole conversation more interesting. It raises the bar. It forces you to uh, offer a more intelligent response than if artists are isolated and are at the beck and call of the curatorial uh, agenda. Um... It's a terrible idea to guilt people into charity or to suggest that artists need to be handled with care like water lilies or tropical parakeets. The alternative to spending one's career in hope of a charitable curator is to threaten with credibility as artists once used to do on a regular basis. Um, That's not entirely accurate. What's, What's actually true is that even today there are occasional moments of this happening But again, these moments are not theorized and historicized as contemporary art as we know it. They're seen as freak occurrences, nuclear options. Um, (laughs) This is the perfect moment, nuclear options. (laughs) Um, Someone's agreeing with me here. so the one, the, the one example of coalition work that I know best, I was a board member for a number of years until very recently, is a, you could call it a pressure group of artists in North America. I don't know how uh, well known it is in Australia. These are artists who are trying to establish the idea of artist fees, to insist on um, remuneration beyond exposure um, in a North American context and um, what's amazing is that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's actually been quite successful even though we're financially uh, desperate and, and um, the artists running it are completely overworked and it's always on the verge of collapse. It's had quite an impact and the conversation has moved towards um, into the mainstream uh, discussion, into the mainstream. Um, and in some individual cases Artist fees have been taken far more seriously and institutionalized. Um, and let's see, perhaps there will be a domino, f- domino effect here. Um, the chief theorist of the wage uh, collective is a Dutch economist called Hans Abing, um, who is uh, a really fascinating contribution to this, this conversation here. Um, so, he studied the question of why are artists poor within the uh, uh, milk and honey years of uh, the, ho- the Dutch pampering of artists, this mythical time, the early zeroes when, when artists were supposedly spoiled in a Dutch context. And he was saying, well, it's interesting, that let's take the most cushy example you could think of, and even there, lo and behold, artists are poor. It's kind of odd. Artists manage to maneuver themselves into financial desperation, even when there's an entire infrastructure at their disposal. So how does this work? And among many other things, what he's arguing is that there's one sense in which the artist is undeniably a quarry, and that is in the sense of the glut on the job market that is necessary within the system as it presently works for a pyramid to take shape and a pyramid that has a tip that shines through. Um, so the question, the, the, the solutions that Abing gets to in the final chapters is one of demarcation again, of questioning the idea of access undeniable, and of thinking of what it would mean to regulate the field. Um, and of course this is, a, this is, this is very counterintuitive, to, um, to especially to people like, like myself, who again have been interested in artists from the East and South, and where the idea of access has been so important. Um, but if you stop saying contemporary art is boundless, then you can start to ar- articulate better benchmarks and to think about how to rebuild modes of professional access along smarter lines, maybe more egalitarian lines, maybe less access means more of other things. Last point about curators and then I'll come to a conclusion. Uh, Curators are really good at international coalition building. Curators in an international context happily put each other in the subject position of global agents. They do this for, the, for each other, but they do not do this favor for artists. They do not make them feel like global agents and empower them as such. They isolate them until they jump through the hoops any precarious service provider needs to jump through. So artists are, for example, warned that tourism is the bad object, political tourism, cultural tourism, and then made to beat themselves up when they cannot rise above it. This is... Um, so artists focus on the embarrassment and bad choices that are actually inevitable on an international level, where you don't have the surgical precision of neighborhood initiatives. It comes with with, with the work. Um, and it's a it's a wasted opportunity because contemporary art has tremendous international purchase by virtue of the world it worldview it embodies and the worldview it proposes. So, by that I mean biennales, for example, are a sprawling infrastructure and an example of uh, universalist ideology. Contemporary art, as in many ways it has even more traction than human rights, than the human rights industry. Um, if you're looking for boundless potential, this is where, where to look. But for all the embarrassment, um, Contemporary art thrives and forms its own cosmopolitan public um, in seminar rooms, in thematic group shows, particularly among younger audiences and even through international boycott initiatives. Um, I know that Sydney is a loaded term here. The Sydney boycott has been quite a a difficult experience for many Um, and uh, many artists have have told me about the contradictions and uh, shortcomings of, of the boycott initiative. Um, but the way I, what I would argue is that it's still, what you have to remember is that if this kind of traction can unfold within the spontaneous touch-and-go circus that is a biennale, what can you do if you have international coalitions that really transcend the breathless moral economy of contemporary art? One last example in terms of internationalism, again, one that I know uh, personally while I was in Palestine for two years. I worked very closely with an organization called Riwak. Some of you will know that uh, at the moment of the foundation of the State of Israel, close to 450 towns and villages were uh, obliterated, and this um, herbicide is now continued within the West Bank at the hands of uh, Palestinian investors who are uh, bulldozing uh, traditional architecture to build, you know, condos, as you do. Um, and Rewalk is an organization, an NGO, scholars, architects, um, and designers, and the occasional artists and curators, uh, who are trying to reverse this trend. Obviously, saving traditional fabric is important in many places in Palestine. Um, it's... Uh, it's extremely charged and and the stakes are deeply dramatic. And I was in a position where, uh, working with Riwaq, I was asked to commission artists, both local artists and international artists, to help with this effort. And so there were many different strategies that we we undertook. And it was fascinating because, um, first of all, you were signing your name on the dotted line, of an institutional agenda with no apologies. There was a mission statement. You weren't doing this in some idea of indeterminate, a radical perhaps. You were looking for a definitive, determinate outcome. This was very refreshing, and despite the tragedy of Palestine, the subaltern effect was completely evacuated from the conversation when I was pitching it, promoting it as a curator in lecture situations such as these. And what is fascinating is that it had the signal effect of this project even within contexts that actually had a very strong uh, Zionist uh, bias like in Germany, for example. Um, The idea and the project had enormous traction and I even was very successful in generating support, even financial support by describing the, the, the tactics and strategies at play. And this was um, through the discourse um, and through the setting and through the infrastructure of contemporary art, but by turning what I've been describing as weaknesses on onto their head and attempting to use the porousness of contemporary art against itself. So it wasn't porousness just for the sense, sake of it wasn't um, um, open-endedness for the sake of open-endedness. It was using certain crook, um, nooks and crannies and crooks um, to, uh, in the name of a clearly articulated end. And um, I'd like to come to a conclusion, but I can gladly uh, come back to that if you're curious. So while I was working for the Wage Coalition, I I was often reminded. Uh, although I'm identifying as a curator here for the purposes of this talk, um, what I what I like to do the most is writing. Is is write, and um, uh, talk about writers as quarry. Um, the the problem is that writers are even even less inclined to try to theorize their way out of the. Uh, professional marginalization that they've, they find themselves in. Um, if, uh, if artists are these, um, you know, maybe you could say they're, uh, they embody missed opportunities as curators and so forth, but writers are cannibals. They prey on each other in ways that are just really depressing. It's very hard to get any coalition work going among among writers. Artists are are actually far, far better at this. Um, But, in my view, what needs to be demystified among artists is um, this idea of accountability only towards um, their work within a context of a contemporary present that is somehow incommensurable and too complex for a world picture. Um, that is where we have to go if we want to account for the really existing impact of contemporary art on the world, let alone harness that impact for other purposes, whether they're post-colonial, feminist, Marxist, uh, anti-Zionist, what have you. What I'd like to tell students in the light of that is to stop worrying about being too didactic and to worry instead about self cutifying or self-marginalizing themselves. And not to worry about the dangers of a master narrative because they're part of one anyway. Creepy as it sounds, the bigger and better challenge is to build a master narrative worth its salt. All of which again boils down to seeing contemporary art as an exercise in persuasion and organization, as a future-oriented operation and not as an innocent line of flight. Maybe as artists, you do not have to be the quarry, but you can even be the other end of the stick. And once again, as creepy as it sounds, that might be a good thing. But we live in very creepy times, uh, what can I say? Thank you.
2: Great, thanks very much, Chair Don. Um, I think we will open up for questions, and to get things going, I'm happy to kick things off. Um, I appreciate, and it was great to have a talk that tried to speak in quite broad, sweeping terms about the art world and the world in which we operate. But we did get some interesting and provoking examples, even just briefly, of exhibitions that might have helped to change the course of history. Um, but then, very briefly, is no—you know—that no mention was made of um, artworks or artists who, in and of themselves, have um, shifted tides in significant ways. And I wonder if there are projects that sit with you as kind of historical or recent contemporary examples of that kind of change. And I guess. In asking that question, I kind of disregard WAGE as not an artist's project, but as a collective action. And I guess that's maybe the second part of the question, which is to ask, can the artworks do it themselves? Or is it through these kind of more um, active, um, multiple, collective um, strategies that artists have been, um, or can be in the future, agents for change?
1: um the 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 second the second question for me is easier to uh answer the, the, i don't I don't think the art artworks can do it themselves because um because they are now only they're inextric, inextricable um factors within a much larger web um and so to think of them independently of. The discourse and the installation shots and the finance capital that they are, uh, you know, the matrix w- of which they are embedded within, um, is is not. It's not just you know the, the the idea that the artwork was autonomous was demystified a long time ago. But what is new, is that they're being embedded within this matrix also gives them gives them traction. But even for this traction to to materialize, they can't do it alone. It doesn't. It's unfair to expect the the artwork to do that, and I haven't seen it happen in recent years. Um, In terms of uh, really existing examples of artists um, and exhibitions um, and other case studies actually changing things, yes, of course, it happens. It happens all the time. It happens. um, the The thing I was saying about so so on the micro political level, what I was saying about exhibitions. Uh, one problem with this indeterminacy thing is that it's just empirically untrue. That's not what happens in an, in an exhibition space. Actually, an, it, it's the, an exhibition is there to convince, it's, and it often does. And the more fuzzy it presents itself, the better it works, the better it is at as an, as indoctrinating. Um, and this, uh, it's just as, it's just as um, naive as the idea of consumerism and the idea of free choice. Um, it's that, that is just as um, misleading within an exhibition context. Actually, an artist uh, a- attempts to present her work as valid and in some way true, Whether it's, even if it's just an aesthetic truth that is being proposed here. Um, and so it happens all the time, um, but it's not theorized as such. Instead, we see the best-case scenario as making the audience think for itself. Um, and on a macro-political level, uh, I was fascinated, well, when m- moving to Palestine, I started doing research on the, uh, the boycott divestments and divestment and sanctions movement. And then I, that, from there, I just stumbled into this huge um, oral and partially written history of artist boycotts, of a wild variety of things, many of which were actually very successful. Um, and during those years I lived in upstate New York, there were actually several that were successful. Um, one of the Freeze Art Fair, uh, one of Sotheby's, one of, there was, was another one. Um, and, but, they, but again, they're seen as nuclear options. They're seen as these freak occurrences that are traumatic and weird and bad blood and we really shouldn't, we should avoid this kind of thing. Um, when actually they happen all the time. Um, so the, the, the you, do you see do you see what I'm saying? Like it's it's yes absolutely. There's so many examples, like the exhibition that I showed, of the traction of contemporary art being plain for everyone to see, but it's mapped as a as an aberration. So that's where.
2: Uh, at one point, you talked about uh, art as activism. It was very briefly, but you discussed how it sort of um, transcended the contemporary art communities and became mainstream discussion. Uh, I suppose my question is, uh, if you're preaching to the perverted, how is it that those discussions do become public and people that perhaps don't have access to contemporary art do become part of that discussion? And how can uh, activist art actually make change in real time and in real life?
1: A big question. I mean, using the wage example or... Um so your is is your question how we managed to make it a mainstream conversation or. Um, um, we did a lot of guilting, um, shaming, shaming and naming. Um, we we uh, by by mainstream. By the way, I don't mean that they're discussing this on CNN. I mean that. The new museum, for example, and then even even the Smithsonian and like many many really ha- hard heavy hitters, were suddenly um, in a position where they had to justify themselves uh, on the issue of, th- of fees. Um, we we uh, accessed all the the public publicly and ac- actually it is all publicly accessible. Like this this data in many settings is publicly accessible. It just takes someone to, to compile it into an Excel sheet and to see how it breaks down. Uh, what are the working budgets of institutions and how does this translate into remuneration for artists? And it took a lot of legwork, but it's totally doable and the results are as shocking as you might assume. But once it's on, black on white, it becomes much harder to just kind of poo-poo as this, you know, yeah, we'll think about it. Um, and the, the, other, the other side of the equation was to um, sometimes it was also more specific like um, targeting documenta um, and the fact that the fee structure there is also quite scandalous and again it was a question of publicizing and, and naming um, and building pressure this way uh, the other side of the equation was um, was attempting to normalize and depersonalize the whole thing for artists. Um, so the, the problem if you ask for a fee as an artist is that you're seen as difficult or demanding, uh, you know, like, eh, pain in the neck. Um, and it's also embarrassing to ask for money. Like, you shouldn't have to. So it's kind of, mm. um, So we, if you just put, if you have a signature on your email that says, um, I'm a member of Wage, or I abide by these um, bylines. Then it depersonalizes the whole thing, and it becomes just a bureaucratic. It has a more bureaucratic tenor. And on, on the Wage website, there are all these um, very clear criteria that break down into solo shows, group shows, performances, old work, new work, etc., and propose uh, percentages of the working budget for in terms of remuneration. So that's, you know, these are, these are the kinds of tactics that were pursued. I can sense that your question was a more abstract one, but then it becomes enormous. Um, <laughs> and I would have to revisit my talk and kind of like, answer it by reformulating. So, the best I can do is like answer with very technical, sort of, you know, measures and, yeah? in the case of in the case of wage um, the the utopian moment is one of a domino effect really it's it's hoping that if artists once artists fees become banal and a matter of routine then maybe uh, this will uh, uh, have a domino effect that will also touch upon interns but then also many other underpaid members of the economy of the arts economy and then maybe if that happens, that'll also join a broader discussion. Um, that's kind of how we, we mapped it out. And there's The other side of the, of the sort of utopian dimension is that if artists are paid decently, there's less money. And if there's less money, there's less shows. And if there's less shows, the whole thing is going to decelerate. Um, and then we're back to Hans Abing and the idea of restrictions and of a slowing down and of the need to, to think more about uh, sustainability and to drop the idea of access at all costs and uh, more is more, and so on and so forth. Um, maybe that's a better answer to what you're interested in.
2: Hey, thank you. Uh, just that little point you made about the studio visit that you did earlier today, and perhaps that the artists that you encountered were already engaging with a kind of refusal of radical indeterminacy or the radical perhaps or ambiguity or um, just to link that to your phrase, that excellent phrase dialectical, no, was it the dialectical backflip that you were suggesting may need to occur in order for these sorts of more concrete, physical, tangible uh, outcomes to emerge. Perhaps in that context of the artists that you visit, that it's not so much a backflip, but things that they've already been doing anyway for quite a long time, which makes me think about, you know, the differences between different regions and how they might approach what is and is not contemporary art. I just wondered if you might say a little bit more about your experience today in the studio.
1: Um, I mean, what I could say about... about, my visits today would probably be really banal and I would just embarrass myself as the tourist that I am. I think the more interesting response would be maybe to compare it to contexts that I know better. Um, where, I mean, there are, there are settings where it would maybe make more sense to say uh, whatever contemporary art can do, we can do better and we don't need contemporary art. There are some places and times where that, it, that would be a strategic, uh, um, strategically the more beneficial thing to do, at least for a time. Um, more often than not, I'm, I, that's not what I suggest if, if you're in conversation with, with people who are he- hesitating to do that. I, I tend to say that actually contemporary art has this monstrous amount of leverage that you should tap into. Um, in Palestine, for example, ten years ago um, you could, at the, at the academy where I was teaching in Ramallah, ten years ago you could see um, differences to the moral economy that I'm describing here. You don't see them anymore. Um, and this is always seen as like a sense of like, it's always encountered with a sense of loss. You know, like visiting curators are like, oh, oh, they sound like anyone now. You know, <laughs> and it's very aggravating because, well, if someone in um, in London has the right to engage with this, then why don't they? You know, who are you to tell them that they, um, and they want to partake in the traction that contemporary art offers? Um, but in that case, in my view, um, if you if you are stepping into this uh, this uh, Apparatus moving at such ter- terrifying velocity, it's not enough to just step in and say, um, you know, maybe an attentive audience will notice that we're different, because then you will be put in the subaltern position, you know, not just geopolitically, but also as the other, the exception that proves the rule or something. Um, it has to be addressed in far more um, assertive unapologetic, explicit, didactic fashion, um, otherwise I don't, like, you're, you're not, you know, it's not, it's, this, it's the apparatus that's using you, you, rather than you using the apparatus, like, then it almost defeats the purpose of, of joining that thing. I'm, I'm speaking to the artists, Yeah. No, of course, of course. I mean, here we're talking about artists, so I'm focusing on them, but of course, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's easier for theorists, too, you know. Uh, it's, it's, um, I think that um, artists, um, they're under much more pressure than, than, or even more pressure to be anti-didactic, you know, and to, and to say, oh, um yeah, to, to offer this kind of generosity to the, to the audience. Like, artists are rewarded for that kind of posture.
2: Uh, I'm interested in your sort of suggestion of the space of art being diminished by certain actions or certain strategies. And I'd like you to just comment on what you see as being the space of art. Um, uh, I'm just not thinking of it being romanticized, but it does seem to be sanctified in some way.
1: What is the space of art? Yeah. Um, Well, we're sitting in a space of art right now. um, And uh, traditionally, it's the exhibition space. but uh, it's becoming harder and harder to focus on these things. And um, what the moral economy that I've been um, describing is uh, thriving because the space of art uh, can now be seen in the most unlikeliest of of places. The reason why the boycott initiatives I was talking about earlier have traction is because um, even um, contracts for arms sales between countries in Europe and countries in the Middle East have become a space for contemporary art. Contemporary art is now a bargaining chip within very complex conversations with financial and political and demographic uh, uh, ramifications even. Um, and um, this, this can be seen as a cause for great melancholy, um, but it can also be seen as an opportunity, which is what I'm arguing for. Um, Maybe one space of art that I would add that uh, actually I I had in my notes and I I kind of like uh, glossed over is is, um, seminar rooms, teaching situations. Um, Contemporary art is bleeding into all kinds of institutions as part of uh, educational policies, but even if we stick to um, MFAs and BFAs and PhDs, Teaching is, the, you know, I'm romanticizing the idea of a future-oriented operation. Like, that's the, that's the good object in the room that I'm trying to... Um, and teaching is the future-oriented operation par excellence. Like, our present is uh, the result of, pa- of, of, of previous teaching efforts, basically. Um, it's, there's, there are a few things that are quite as... Um, Clearly and unmistakably future-oriented, and maybe maybe that's the most uh, important space of art uh, in terms of the the agenda that I have here. You about the idea that it might be but I don't think it is diminished. I think it's I think it's voracious. I think it's ever expanding. Um, I'm. I i do not understand the question. I don't think it's diminished. So I. Absolutely. Um, so the, the, the statement that... Um, here, what is... I, I mentioned that it's kind of slippery. Um, the, the, what's, what's hard to uh, get across is that I'm actually agreeing with Vidocle for the wrong reasons. Um, he is saying that... Um, You should not diminish the space of art because that would um, strip artists of the ability to roam free. You know, these innocent beasts that they are. (laughs) Um, And this is the space that should not be diminished. Um, I am saying that it's it's actually this voracious, terrifying machine And that not only is it voracious, I don't think its space should be diminished. I think that the smarter way to approach it is to use this momentum um, for other purposes. Does that make sense? Yeah.
2: If there aren't any more questions, maybe we can just say thanks one last time. We can all work towards a better future. (laughs) Tomorrow, step one. (laughs)